Chapter 12 of Manners for Men. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Ruth. Manners for Men by Mrs. Humphrey. Chapter 12 Public Dinners. The following information is supplied by a gentleman well known in the city and thoroughly au fait in such matters. Public dinners may be classed as those given by associations or public bodies, and those given by institutions such as some of the great city companies. When given by an association, the function is generally managed by a committee, who have the arrangement of all the details, such as choosing the menu, the wines, preparing the programme of music, instrument or vocal, and arranging the due sequence of the speeches. A guest invited to such an entertainment, who may not be of the few highly placed personages who sit at the cross table or on the dais, and from whom speeches are expected, will, on arriving at the hall, hotel, or public institution selected, find that the first thing required of him will be his invitation card. In exchange for this, he will be handed a more or less elaborate menu card, which will also contain the list of music and a sketch showing the position of the guest seats at the tables. After depositing his hat and overcoat in the cloakroom, receiving a numbered ticket for them, he enters the reception or drawing room. His name is announced and he passes into the room, goes up to the members of the committee who stand by themselves to receive the guests, bows or shakes hands and passes on to join the other guests who are either sitting or standing in groups engaged in conversation when dinner is announced the hosts and the highest in rank of the guests file into the dining room and take up their position by their chairs followed by the rest any clergyman present says grace on being asked to do so and the banquet commences Strangers sitting next to each other soon fall into conversation, and after the dispatch of the solid portion of the repast comes the speeches. Music is played at intervals, perhaps a few songs sung by professionals, then desserts, cigars and coffee, after which the guests find their way to the drawing-room for more general conversation, some preferring to leave without re-entering the drawing-room. In such large gatherings, it is not necessary to take leave of their hosts as a rule. Dinners given by city companies are very much on the same principle. The guest has but to don his evening clothes and carry himself with easy composure, not always a simple matter to the inexperienced. If one may judge from the hurried steps and the sudden bob that many give on entering the reception room after arrival. At dinners given on behalf of charities, it is well to go prepared with a subscription, as a collection is often made on these occasions. If not prepared to subscribe, it is more discreet to stay away. With regard to tips, the only ones really recognised are those for whom the plates on the cloakroom table are laid ready in expectation of small silver coins. Though no fees are actually necessary at table, the initiated person is well aware that the man behind his chair can administer to his wants and see that he is liberally provided with viands and wines or other matters without keeping him waiting longer than necessary. 
A tip, quietly conveyed before the dinner is underway, is not by any means wasted. It sometimes happens that semi-official dinners are given at private houses, when proprietors of newspapers or wealthy men interested in certain undertakings entertain the staff of those employed. In such circumstances it may be as well to warn the guests against addressing the footman as waiter. This may appear to be superfluous advice, but I myself have been present when the mistake was made, evidently to the intense indignation of the magnificent being thus addressed. At such dinners as these, the host treats his guests as his social equals for the nonce. By having invited them to his house, he places himself in a position of regarding them as he would his own friends at his dinner table. Any infraction of this would be in the worst taste. It is also usual to abstain from any business talk at such times as these, the conversation being encouraged to dwell on general topics. Though the fiction of social equality is maintained by the host, the guests need not adopt a familiar, free and easy manner in response. True manliness involves sufficient self-respect to preserve the possessor from falling into this error. But it is perhaps a little difficult for the novice on such occasions to bear himself in such wise as to avoid undue familiarity on one hand and an air of stiffness and standoffishness on the other. In his anxiety not to appear to presume upon the friendliness of his host's manner, he is apt to wear a rather repellent air, and this is more particularly so when the employee is by birth the equal, if not the superior, of his entertainer. It often happens that a man at the head of a great business has risen from obscure beginnings to the command of wealth and a high position in the world, enjoying a title and many of the extraneous advantages of rank. Among those whom he employs may be several who are his social superiors in all but wealth. But any of them who imagine that this fact gives them any claim upon his consideration or entitles them to converse with him upon a footing of equality make a radical mistake. Their position as regards their employer is exactly that justified by their standing in his firm. The true gentleman is well aware of this and would never dream of inserting himself in any way on the strength of being well-born or highly educated. He leaves all that kind of thing to the man who feels his claim to gentlemanhood to be so shadowy and insecure as to need constant insistence. Besides, the host is usually the elder and deference to seniority is an important part of good manners and sits extremely well upon the young. End of chapter 12 Recording by Ruth